Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Johan Hari returns to Little Atoms to talk about his book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Johan Hari is a British journalist who has written for the New York Times, the LA Times, the Guardian, Le Monde, Slate, the New Republic and the Nation, amongst others. He was a columnist on The Independent for nine years and was twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International UK. He's also been named Cultural Commentator of the Year by the Editorial Intelligence Awards and Gay Journalist of the Year by Stonewall. That's the blurb from Johan's new book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Johan, welcome back to Little Atoms, first of all. It's been know, at least it's four really years good. since we've spoken. Is it really four years? It's at least four oh, years yeah, right. since the last time. Everything in that blurb is true, but it's also rather a one-sided biography of those last four years. So, you know what this show's like, I'm not Oprah Winfrey, but I wanted to bring it up before we start about the book, because I think it's important for us to clear the air about something, because as I've just said, we've been friends for a long time, and you've been on the show a number of times, and also, inevitably, some of the other people that got hurt in the unpleasantness that's happened Well, some people won't know what you mean, Neil, so I should should just clarify that I did uh, two things that were really awful things to do. One was in, uh, when I interviewed people... Sometimes I would use material they had spoken elsewhere or written down and acted as if it had been said directly to me. And also on Wikipedia, sometimes I would edit other people's entries under a pseudonym and I was uh, horrible and nasty about some of them. Those are both kind of awful things to do. Um, Well, as I said, I don't really want to get too involved in that because I want to talk about this book because this is a radio show about books. And Mm. I mean, inevitably, when we first begin to talk about the book, there's sort of crossovers, which which we'll have to go into. But specifically, personally, as I said, some friends were hurt in those two incidences or, you know, specifically the the latter. And you haven't necessarily apologised for one of those things. So before we go on, before we carry on to talk about chasing the scream, would you commit to apologising to specifically Nick Cohen and Francis Ween for the Wikipedia instances. Yeah, in early 2012 or late 2011, I wrote to both Nick Cohen and Christina O'Donnell. I didn't actually post the letters. My flatmate Alex Higgins posted them, so he's happy to you know, point out they were put in the post box to those addresses. Um, Christina got the letter 
and very kindly uh, said recently and publicly that she accepted the apology, I believe. I, I was told recently that Nick had, had said that he didn't, I hadn't apologised to him, so something must have, I don't know, he clearly didn't receive the letter. Uh, and I'm happy to write to Francis and apologise. What I'd like to do, Neil, is to, to make sure it gets to them, is give you some letters to give to them, if that would be all right. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Okay, just to make sure 100% it does get to them. Yeah, let's do yeah. that. Thanks, I really appreciate that. Thank you. It, you know, it's, it's, it's a very cruel thing to do to edit someone pseudonymously. It's cowardly. It's, um, it's a nasty thing to do. So, you know, I'm, of course I'll write to them both. It's a, a small gesture, but I think it's, it's symbolic. And I do think people will think that that's a, you know, a, a great thing to do. So I want to talk about Chasing the Screen, the first and last days of the war on drugs. I need to say before we go on that this book is is brilliant. I absolutely loved it. It's exciting, it's shocking, it's terrifying. To what extent to what I said does this book exist because of the things that we've just briefly touched on? Because obviously this came out of that period. Now I know also you talk in this book about friends who were addicts and your own issues with drugs that you've written about in the past on more than one occasion. But would this book exist if the former hadn't happened? I don't really know. I think after I left the indie, I knew that I definitely wanted to think about writing in a different way. I wanted to think in a much more in-depth way. I wanted to argue less and listen more. And I wanted to sit and listen with people. I don't know the answer to your your question fully. I know that I didn't... After what happened, I really felt I'd lost my taste for judging people and polemicising. I just found I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to think that way. And what interested me when I was starting the book was just the process of instead just sitting with people and listening and going back a lot of times and just again and again talking over their lives. So, for example, Chino Hardin, who's one of the central figures in the book. Chino is um, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Chino uh, is a transsexual former crack dealer in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, who was conceived when her mother, Deborah, who was a crack addict, was raped by her dad, Victor, who was a New York police officer. So she is kind of a child of the drug war in the truest sense. Deborah died in the first wave of the AIDS epidemic because nothing was done in the United States to help um, injecting drug users. In fact, the people who tried to help them were criminalised because they were accused of promoting drug use by handing out clean needles. And then when Chino was 13, Chino became a crack dealer himself. Chino um, rose and became a kind of figure in the in the Crips, spent his childhood in and out of, um, first of all, Sparford, which is a horrendous child prison in New York State, and then in, in Rikers Island. And when Chino was in his early 20s, he kind of got out of Rikers and had this kind of damaging revelation. He went and read about the drug war and started to see his whole life through the frame of the drug war. The drug war had caused his conception, it killed his mother, it created this massive prohibitive criminal trade, which then led Chino to do all sorts of insane things. And although Chino takes a lot of personal responsibility for what he did, he also thought, fuck, my life didn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. And Chino became an extraordinarily articulate opponent of the war on drugs. He actually then led a campaign to shut down Sparford, the youth prison that he was um, he was treated so badly, and, and succeeded, and shut down Sparford. And what I found much more interesting than arguing about the drug war, right? There are arguments in the book, but I'd like to think, to a large degree, they emerge from stories like Chino's or like a really big range of people, like Lee Maddox, who was a cop in Baltimore, who could not believe more in the war on drugs, fought it up front and then realised a load of things and realised that it was completely counterproductive. Or Rosalio Retta, the only person to ever be the only person to ever be at the heart of the Zetas, the Mexican drug cartel, make it out and live to tell his story. 
or um, uh, Bruce Alexander, a professor in Vancouver who discovered what really causes addiction. I was much more interested. I think the, I guess the biggest way the book results from what happened is I felt a radical change of style in my thinking and my writing after what happened. I don't think I could really tease out the why or the causal relationships. I think that'd be much harder to know. But I know that did happen. And one of the things that's been nice that people have said about the book to me, read it, is this doesn't feel like your columns. This is Mm -hmm. so different to that style. You know, partly because I actually think, uh, you know, a 400-page column would be an insufferable thing to read Mm -hmm. anyway. It'd be like being harangued for... You know, you can tolerate being harangued yeah. for five minutes. You can't tolerate being harangued for however many hours it would take to read the book. To, to go on, you've just mentioned a number of the people that you interview. We'll yeah. talk about all of those people individually a bit later on in the interview. But the book is full of interviews. And of course, some of the issues that previously happened were to do with interviews. So what steps have you taken in this book? Why should anybody believe a word you say, Johan? What steps have you taken in this book to sort of alleviate mm. that worry? Well, all the interviews were recorded. There's about 400 hours of it. All of them were given to my publisher, Bloomsbury. And all the the, the more than 400 quotes that are used in the book, you can just listen to them on the website, www.chasingthescream, so you can follow along. Actually, that's quite a cool feature anyway. You know, while you're reading the book, you can hear someone like Chino, who just ferociously eloquent. Whenever you see a quote from Chino, you can just click on the website and, and hear it. I'm Julie Bindle, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's talk about the war on drugs then. Let's go back to where it starts. You look at the the war on drugs, the history of the beginning of the war on drugs through three people who were all affected by it in different ways. So there's Billy Holiday, uh, Harry Anslinger, who was um, well, you can you can tell us who he was in a moment. Arnold Rothstein, who um, was a gangster. Anybody who watches Boardwalk Empire will be familiar <laughs> with as well. So let's talk about why you chose to do it through those. What what do those three people tell us about that time? Well, I think the thing that's really interesting to me. Most people, when you think about if you say when did the war on drugs begin but even people who know quite a lot about it would think about Nixon and the, the early 70s and what really surprised me actually when I started doing the research is this all begins so much earlier it's now a hundred years since drugs were first criminalised mm-hmm. in both the US and Britain and the way I came to think of it is two global wars start in 1914 one lasts for four years and one still hasn't ended mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating when you look at I, I kind of open with the story of Billie Holiday being stalked by Harry Anslinger because I think partly because I think it's just a fantastic story in itself but also because I think it really reveals the dynamics that drove the early drug war. If you were to say why were drugs banned, most of us would think, would project backwards the reasons that most of us would give now. You know, we don't want kids to use drugs, we don't want people to become addicted, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Actually, what's very striking when you read all the stuff from the time is that stuff barely comes up. It's, it's not what they're worried about at all. In 1939, Billie Holiday stands on stage in New York City and she sings that song, Strange Fruit, which um, I guess most people know is a, you know, a song against lynching. And as her goddaughter told me, you know, um, Lorraine Feather, that was really shocking mm-hmm. to have an African-American woman standing in front of a mostly white audience singing about... I mean, she wasn't even allowed to go into those hotels through the front door. Mm-hmm. Even in New York City, she had to go through the service elevator. So to have a, an African-American woman doing that was viscerally shocking. And, you know, Billie Holiday's biographer, Julia Blackburn, talks about how that night the Federal Bureau of Narcotics says to Billie Holiday, stop singing that song. And she refuses. And that's when their persecution of her really began. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was run by a fascinating man called Harry Anslinger, who I think is probably the most influential person no one's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Harry Anslinger was a, 
a bureaucrat who takes over the Department of Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So he's got this big bureaucratic department with nothing to do, incredibly demoralised because they've just mm-hmm. lost the war on alcohol. And he then pioneers modern drug prohibition. It had been introduced before he arrived, but he really gathers it into a kind of massive bureaucratic... He's the first person to use the phrase warfare on drugs. Mm-hmm. And he is really driven by two obsessions... One is a hatred of addicts based on bad experience he had as a little boy. And one is a really strong hatred of black people. I mean, he was regarded as racist by the racists at the time. You know, like he used the N word in official memos. His own senator said he should have to resign for doing that. And Anslinger becomes obsessed with Billy Holiday. I went to his archives in Penn State. And, you know, the story of what he does to Billy Holiday, which I got from speaking to almost all the people who were alive who knew her and from reading the biographies that exist of her already and from looking at some archives relating to Billie Holiday, is such a striking story. First of all, he sent an agent called Jimmy Fletcher to stalk her. Harry Anslinger hated employing black people, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to stalk mm-hmm. Billie Holiday. It'd be kind of conspicuous. So he employs this guy called Jimmy Fletcher, and Jimmy Fletcher has to follow Billie Holiday for two years, and she gets to know him. And, you know, they kind of dance together, and he, you know, one time he has to go and raid her, and you know, Billie Holiday was so amazing, he fell in love with her. It's really clear. And he felt really ashamed of what he did for her for the rest of his life. He 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 went and he busts her and she's put on trial. Uh, about the trial, she said it was... Um, the trial was called the, the United States versus Billie Holiday and that's how it felt. And she's sent to prison. This is a person who was, you know, raped when she was a little girl, then a child prostitute, so raped for money. You know, she needed to stun her pain with initially very strong um, alcohol and then heroin. She's sent to prison, she doesn't sing a word when she's in prison. And when she gets out, to have a, to perform anywhere where alcohol is sold, you had to have a, a cabaret performer's licence. And for that, you couldn't have a criminal record. So she's refused, she, she can't sing. Mm. You know, and her friend Yolanda Bavan said, you know, what's the cruelest thing you can do to a person is to take away the thing they're great at. So she's kind of broken, she can't even get an apartment in her own name, and still Harry Ansling is not finished with her. He sends a guy called George White. And George White, when you read about George White and you look through his archives and stuff, it's mind-blowing. George White was a morbidly obese white psychopath who drugged women and raped them, boasted in his diaries about, uh, or boasted, sorry, in interviews about, you know, liking murderers. He, he'd strangled a man to death during the Second World War, claiming he was a Japanese spy, but boasted afterwards he probably wasn't a spy and had a picture of the guy on his wall looking down at him. This is a seriously... He vows that he's going to... I think the phrase they used was kick Billy Holiday down the stairs. And they do. They, they kind of stalk her and hound her. And in the end, when she's in her early 40s, she collapses. She's got liver cancer. She's taken to a hospital. They refuse to take her because she was an addict. She ends up in another hospital in New York City. And um, they arrest her on a hospital bed. They, I interviewed a guy called, an amazing man called Eugene Callender, who was a reverend in Harlem, who was, as far as I know, the only surviving person who was in the, ever got into that room. They stop her friends coming in. She goes into heroin withdrawal. And when you're very weak with liver cancer, obviously that's terribly dangerous. One of her friends, Maylee Dufty, managed to get them to prescribe methadone. After 10 days, they stop the methadone and she dies. One of her friends told the BBC she looked like she'd been violently wrenched from life. I think that's an important story for lots of reasons, but one of them is... It shows what the real dynamic was about the war Mm -hmm. on drugs. It was not, they were not concerned about, the primary concerns that were given in the explanation were black people and Chinese people are forgetting their place and attacking white people. Mm -hmm. And we need to put them back in their place by punishing them for their drug use. You look at some of the headlines from the New York Times, you know, Negro cocaine fiends attacking, you know, the exact headline is in the book. But it's very hard to get your head around because it seems so weird now. Mm -hmm. It seems like that can't be the case. But I think that story really illustrates 
And this goes right up to today. You know, uh, I think the figure is 40% of all African-American men between the ages of 18 and 30 in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. are in prison on probation or parole at any given time. You know, it's, it's, so the, the dynamics that begin with the drug one, Lee Maddox, who we talked about, that cop in Baltimore, really saw that. One of her colleagues, a guy called Matthew Fogg, you know, said one time he went to, I think he was a D.C. cop, he went to his boss and said, hey, boss, why, the exact quote's in the book, but he said, you know, hey, boss, why did we, why do, when we're doing drug raids, do we only ever go to the black neighbourhoods? I'm sure white people use drugs. And his boss said, you know, well, white people get lawyers and they know judges and they know journalists. Let's just go for the low-hanging fruit. Let's bring in Arnold Rothstein then. Because obviously, I mean, this is, this is happening after prohibition of alcohol has ended. Prohibition has been a massive failure. Everybody knew that it was a failure and that what it had done is created basically a... The other thing we, that we haven't mentioned, which we should bring in, is that Harry Anslinger at that time was like the, first, the you know the one person who was suggesting that uh, the mafia was controlling the you know the alcohol trade before anybody else even believed really in America that the mafia existed. So they must have known that the same thing was going to happen, the exact same thing was going to happen. So let's talk about who, like apart from the you know the racial element of it, whoever was going to, who was going to benefit from this war on drugs anyway? What did they think the outcome was going to be? Well, it's really interesting. I think you're totally right. You've gone to a really important bit. It's kind of hard to remember. Drugs were legal, right? If you wanted to buy opiates, you would go to the pharmacy and the most popular way of consuming it was something called Mrs. Wimslow's Soothing Syrup, which was like a Tixie Licks with a little bit of opiates in it. And you could buy a a heroin hamper at Harrods. Mm -hmm. And um, the most popular way of consuming uh, cocoa-based products was through coca tea. And then this is shut down, it's banned. And immediately there's an amazing man called Henry Smith-Williams, who was a doctor in California who really documented all this. As soon as, bear in mind, when it was legal, there were studies looking at this, very early on, before the persecution of drug addicts begins, I can't remember the exact stats in the book, but the vast majority of them had jobs, they were no more likely to be poor than the general population. Addiction was certainly a problem if you were an opiate addict, it was a problem. And no one should diminish that, but it you know, the, the things that we now associate with it are not true. And this Dr. Henry Smith-Williams saw suddenly his patients when it's banned, these people who previously had gone to the corner shop, you know, to buy it, suddenly they have to go to armed criminal gangsters who massively jack up the price, mm-hmm. massively contaminate the product. The, you suddenly have this wave of criminal gangsters fighting each other to control the trade and loads of addicts becoming thieves or prostitutes. That wasn't anything that had been known beforehand. So you suddenly have this huge eruption. Into this eruption stands Arnold Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein... He's probably the most famous gangster of the jazz age. He is the inventor of modern drug dealing. And he sees an opportunity because he was a smart guy, you know. He steps in and kind of industrializes. Previously, what they'd done with um, drug dealing was you should have kind of low-level gangs who would just hijack medical supplies or get it from Canada. But what Rothstein does is kind of industrial-scale importation of drugs. (laughs) You start to see the dynamics that I saw with Chino and in Mexico as well happening there. If you run, let's say, uh, you know, Oddbins, right? If I go into Oddbins and try to steal your product, Mm -hmm. you just call the police and they take me away, right? Because alcohol is legal. Mm -hmm. You don't get the the head of Oddbins doesn't go and try to blow up the off-licence across the street, Mm -hmm. right? If you are, however, selling cannabis or cocaine or or whatever, obviously you can't ring the police and say someone's stolen my cannabis because they'll come and arrest you, not the person who stole it. So that means that you have to fight back physically. Mm -hmm. But actually, ideally, you don't even want to get into the fight. You want to establish a reputation for being so terrifying that no one is going to fuck with you. Mm -hmm. So you immediately creates what um, the sociologist Philippe Bourgeois calls a culture of terror. And Arnold Rothstein is the first person who really gets this. Mm -hmm. You have got to be terrifying. So... 
there's partly that dynamic. People have got to be really frightened. There's a story that his unorthodox wife wrote about where someone, he's on the subway and someone stole his uh, stick pin. You know, like one of those little things you put in your suit. And um, Rothstein was furious, and the next day he gets it sent back, and someone saying, "I'm so sorry, Mr. Rothstein, we didn't know who you were." That's how scared people. Were. The police were terrified of him. The other dynamic you get with Rothstein is if you're controlling a massive trade, you can buy the police as well. And and you know, people would say often there's a there was a journalist at the time who talked about how you know he was the most feared. You know, people feared him more than the NYPD commissioner. So. All these dynamics start with Rothstein, and, and there's, it's interesting, Charles Bowden, who was a very good writer about the drug war, who sadly died last year, said in one of his books, you know, the war on drugs creates the war for drugs. Mm-hmm. You get gangsters killing each other. We all know that with um, alcohol prohibition. Obviously, no one is fighting over the control of the mm-hmm. alcohol trade now because it's legal. And Rothstein is the beginning of that, and Rothstein is eventually murdered by a rival uh, drug gangster. We don't know that much about what happened. The police were basically too frightened to investigate mm-hmm. it, so we never found out who killed Arnold Rothstein. It's still a mystery. But I almost think of that as like like the bullet that kills the Archduke in, uh, in Sarajevo. It's like the, I think I call it the bullet at the birth of the drug war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, the, the moment when it all splinters. And it was fascinating, actually. Arnold Rothstein dies not very far from where Chino is born, mm-hmm. whatever it is, 70 years later. And it was so interesting. Chino was like the Arnold Rothstein of his block. And essentially, when, when Arnold Rothstein starts, there's only one Arnold Rothstein. But by the time you get to when Chino was born, I think Chino's the same age as me, so it would be no, Chino's a year, year younger than me, so 1980. You have a fracture trade where you just have enormous numbers of gangsters mm-hmm. killing each Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who I would not normally cite approvingly, as you know, uh, he calculated there were 10,000 murders a year, mm-hmm. additional murders a year in the United States caused by the drug war. I want to bring us right up to date then. Obviously, that situation that you just described with the, you know, the sort of culture of terror is exactly you know, what's going on in, in sort of South and Central America, particularly at the moment, which we'll get on to because you go and visit that. But staying in, we'll stay in America. I mean, we could, we could sort of apply these things to, the, to what's happening in the UK. But, you know, America is where the, the, the war on drugs started, so we'll stay there. What's the situation now for somebody who is... I mean, not even necessarily a drug addict, not even necessarily someone who's a heroin addict, but somebody, you know, who has a, a small amount of... of their caught with a small amount of drugs on them. You visit a prison in Arizona, Tent City, which is just... I mean, the depiction of it is just absolutely shocking. When I went to Tent City, I mean, it was... As you say, I mean, it's... The reason why I chose Tent City is because the guy who runs Maricopa County in Arizona, uh, the legal side of Maricopa County, a guy called Joe Arpaio, Sheriff Joe, and he was a personal disciple of Harry Anslinger. Mm-hmm. When I mentioned Harry Anslinger's name to him, he lit up. He said, oh, you've got a great guy here. Somebody remembers Harry Anslinger. He was so happy. And Tent City is a, it's a prison made of tents, right? So it's, it's a load of tents in the desert. It's actually in Phoenix, but the whole of Arizona is a desert, basically. And you get all these... I spent most of my time with the women there, but there are men and women there who are drug addicts, recovering... Well, imprisoned drug addicts. And they're forced to go out on chain gangs wearing T-shirts saying... The exact text is in the book, but, you know, I was a drug addict or, you know, I forget these horrendous rhymes. I can't remember exactly what they were. Forced to go out on chain gangs in public to be humiliated. They're forced to dig graves. They're forced to do all sorts of things. And you'd speak to these women. And actually, I was impressed by just the dignity of these women in these awful, this horrendous situation. And these guards, they're forced by the guards to chant things like... I can't remember the exact words again. They're in the book. But, you know, basically they'll tase us if we don't stay in line. And you're just like, fuck me. I interviewed, uh, there are two people who work in prison reform in Arizona, and I interviewed both of them. And um, one of them, when I was interviewing her, I asked her a question like, um, a question I asked everyone really, like saying, tell me, what's most shocked you in your work or something like that? And she was going down this, this long list and somewhere in the list she said, there was the time they put that woman in a cage and cooked her, that was quite bad. And she carried on and I said, sorry, could, 
Could you go back a second? There was a woman called Marsha Powell. I should point out she wasn't in a prison run by Joe Arpaio, which shows how much deeper the culture is than just this one sadist. She was a woman who was, she was a woman in her early 40s who was constantly being imprisoned for either for having meth or prostituting herself to get meth. And she was in this prison in Arizona, and she woke up one morning suicidal, and the guards didn't believe she was suicidal, and to, they take her and they put her in these outdoor holding pen, which is literally just a cage in the desert, it's an mm. exposed cage in the desert. And they put her there and they left her there, and she was crying, and she shat herself, and she begged for water. And the prisoners who saw it say that the guards mocked her, and eventually she collapsed. When they called an ambulance, and the ambulance arrived, she had been cooked. And no one was ever criminally punished for what they did to her because no one gave a shit. You know, I was really struck that almost nothing was known about her. And with the help of Peggy Plews, one of the a great women who works on prison reform, really uh, such an admirable person, uh, I tracked down the, the father of uh, Marsha Powell's children to kind of figure out who this woman was because mm-hmm. there was so little known about her. And the story of who she was is in the book, yeah. but it was, it was just heartbreaking. You know, this, this woman who had such a hard life, like Billie Holiday, who was, I mean, I regard that as, as murder. But what's incredible to realise is that is more typical of the American... It's tempting to say, well, that must be the outlier. And clearly someone being cooked in a cage is an outlier. That's not... It's, most American prisons are not like the Saw movies. But most of the American prison system is closer to that than it is to anything like the compassionate care that I saw in, you know, the countries I'm sure we'll get to. So it's visceral... I mean, there's an amazing stat as well about, you know, the United States has such a massive prison population relative to any society that's ever lived. And um, rape is so endemic that the United States today is almost certainly the first society ever where more men have been raped than women, which is, you know, something to get your head around. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Johan Harry and we're talking about his book Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And in this second part, Johan, we're going to, um, well, I say we, you are going to take us on a, <laughs> on a journey through the landscape of the war of drugs. You, um, you, you travelled extensively and interviewed a lot of people. We've, you mentioned Chino a few times, so let's, because we've got loads of people to cram in, so actually let's go straight to Lee Maddox, who you have mentioned a couple of times, but she's a, a law enforcement perspective on the current state of the war on drugs. So tell us about your, your meetings with her. Well, some of the most fascinating people I spoke to, I think there were 12 or 13, were cops who'd been really strong prohibitionists and had realised... Lee signed up because her best friend, Lisa, was murdered by what Lee believed was a drug gang. So she went into this, could not have had a stronger motivation to destroy drug gangs, right? That was why she was a cop. And although she then went on to do loads of really brave work, like undercover work with the Klan, really dangerous undercover work with the Klan, you know, that was what really drove Lee. And doing the work in Maryland, Lee realised something. She noticed that when you bust a rapist, the next week there's less rape, mm-hmm. right? But when you bust a drug dealer, she noticed two things. Firstly, there's no less drug dealing. No one thinks anyone can't buy cocaine the day after you buy it. There's literally someone mm-hmm. on the corner the next day. But more importantly, the rate of violence actually goes up after you bust a drug dealer. And Lee kind of explained this to me very simply. Imagine Chino's block, right, which Chino controlled. If you arrested Chino or Chino was killed, what you do... Chino controlled it through, you know, terror. What happens is you take Chino out... 
rival gangs are going to fight to control it. So what you do is you trigger a turf war. Now that works at the low level mm -hmm. of Chino's block and that works at the high level of if you take out, take out Chapo Guzman or Pablo Escobar. So cracking down makes the situation actually worse. Now there is a solution which lead them not to find out if you really want to bankrupt the drug gangs. Well, when did they come into existence? They come into existence when you criminalise drugs. Mm -hmm. If you provide legal routes to drugs, the gangs largely are bankrupted. So Lee became this really passionate campaigner for ending the criminalisation of drugs. So let's move into, you know, we've been talking mainly at the moment about the situation in the US. Let's go to where the drugs that are coming into the US are coming from. You journeyed into Mexico. Let's start, actually, before we talk about some of the actual people, um, Juarez, the, the city which is described, I think, as the most dangerous city in the world at the moment. What was it like? Let's just talk about what your impressions of that place were immediately. It's so weird. You kind of... I didn't stay in Juarez. I stayed in El Paso, which is just mm -hmm. over the border. I walked over every day because it's not safe to stay in Juarez. And I should point out that by the time I was there, it wasn't the deadliest city in the world. It's been overtaken by Syria and a few other places. But it's really curious. El Paso... So it would be like if North and South London were different countries, right? Mm -hmm. There's this river dividing... Juarez and El Paso used to basically be the same place. Yeah. And on the El Paso side of the border in Texas, it's incredibly safe. You know, it's got actually a very low murder rate. You walk over to Juarez... The first thing you see, one of the first things you see at the other side of the bridge, it's this weird bridge which has always got those like squeegee merchants, people selling things, and you know, like um, there's this thing that says it used to be a big tourist town. Billy Holiday went there on, I think, for a honeymoon at a big party town. There's this uh, sign that says something like um, "Walking Tour of Downtown Juarez" or something, and it used to be all the tourist sites, except it's just been mm -hmm. replaced with images of missing women. So it's just covered over with images. And I thought that was like a really powerful metaphor for what's happened to Juarez. Murder is basically legal in Juarez. I think the mm -hmm. figure is 98% of murders are unsolved. And the 2% who get convicted, they didn't do it. <laughs> That's because the police were bribed. And it was very strange. I was shown around by uh, Julian Cardona, who's the Reuters correspondent in Juarez. He's a, a fantastic person. Uh, incredibly brave and, and just intelligent and insightful person. And I remember quite early in the time I was there, Julian was introducing me to people who'd been killed by the police. And after a while, I kind of said, you know, Julian, this is like, it's important that I've got to see people who've been killed by the police, but I need to meet people who've been killed by the cartels. And he just kind of laughed and said, you don't understand, Johan. If the cartels want to kill someone, they pay the police to do it. Those aren't separate forces. And I think mm -hmm. that was the moment when I really thought, fuck, imagine if the police are the criminals. Now, I know for a lot of people mm -hmm. in, you know, our societies, that, it does feel that way sometimes. But on such a scale, that was... And, and why is this really weird? Because... In some ways, it looks like any kind of American town. Mm -hmm. There's a Wendy's and a Denny's and there's a mall that you can go to. And it's like, you know, I don't know if there's a Denny's, there's a KFC, which I was tempted to go to because I was stressed out. I don't want to relapse on fried chicken. Um, and I, I never went. Um, the, it's really curious because it's, it's got this kind of twilight zone effect where it both feels very familiar and totally alien. Mm -hmm. So it's, re it's a really peculiar place. And obviously, I mean, before we talk about Rosario, who is um, someone who, you know, one of the very few people who has escaped from working for the, the cartels who you interviewed, so we can have get insight into what the cartels were like. Before then, as you said, it's, you know, there's, there's a Wendy's, there are shopping malls. There's obviously a lot of ordinary people going about trying to live an ordinary life with this war going on around them. So tell us the story about Maricela and Ruby, which you, you, you sort of relate, which is yeah. to get across this idea of the people trying to live a life against the background of the war on drugs. One thing I think is really important, I'm so glad you said that, because one thing I think is really important is, even if you don't care for a second about drug users, drug addicts, cops, or drug dealers, you know, I think, oh, well, those are the people who are involved in the drug war. I don't care about any of those groups. This isn't 
my issue. Mm -hmm. Actually, a really significant portion of the people are people who have nothing to do with drugs or the drug war who get caught in the crossfire. And Maricela's story really, I mean, it's just, well, Maricela was a a nurse and a small businesswoman in, in Juarez. And she had a daughter called Ruby, who, when she was 14, started going out with a much older guy. I think he was in his early 20s, called Sergio. And Maricela was like, you can't do this. And uh, Ruby ran off with Sergio. And Maricela went to the police to say, get my daughter back. And the police are useless in Juarez anyway. But I think they did bring her back once and Ruby ran away again. The exact details are in the book. But anyway, Ruby kept running off with Sergio. And Maricela kept going and looking for her. They ended up having a child. And one time Maricela went to find her daughter. And the child was there, but they said, oh, Ruby's gone. She's not here anymore. And Maricela said, well, what are you talking about? She wouldn't leave her child. And they're like, no, she's, she's run off with another man, sorry. Maricela became convinced that this couldn't be the case. And she started, the police were still useless. She started appealing for information. And a kid called Angel came forward and said, he murdered her, I know where the body was dumped. And it transpired that Sergio had murdered Ruby. There's a big trial. At the trial, Sergio breaks down in the witness box and cries and says, I'm sorry, to Maricela. Right, so <laughs> no doubt the guy did it. And he was mysteriously acquitted and then disappears. And it becomes very clear that what they later found out, and um, I know the story from Juan Frere, who's, who's the son of Maricela, that Sergio was part of the Zetas, which is one of the deadliest cartels, and they basically own the law. So mm-hmm. you are the law if you're the Zetas, so you can kill someone and they can't punish you. Sergio disappeared, and Maricela was heartbroken, but she decided to not give up. So Maricela, it's an amazing story. Maricela basically turns herself into a kind of detective, a kind of Miss Marple. She walks across Mexico. She walks thousands of miles. She tracks him over three years and she finds him with her friend Berta, Alicia Garcia, who I also interviewed. She finds him and she goes to the police and they let him get away again. And she decides to go and protest outside the governor's office in Chihuahua, state capital. And one day as she's standing there, just before Christmas... She's just given a speech. A so guy... there's a movement. There's other mothers. This yeah. is not... We haven't mentioned yeah. this. Oh, this sorry. I should put it Yeah. There's like a movement growing up around her. Of mothers well. yeah. of the disappeared, because there's been mm-hmm. an enormous... 60,000 people have been killed. Enormous numbers of people mm-hmm. have disappeared. No one knows where they are. And the police... You know, and there's no law, basically. Or rather, the law is the law of the cartels. Mm-hmm. So Maricela gets a huge amount of support from other mothers. Uh, she's a real symbol of what happened. And then, as I say, outside the governor's mansion one day, a man just walks up to her and shoots her. Dead in front of all the cameras, everything. And it really was such a symbol of how, by transferring... The reason why it's happened in Mexico is, if you think about think about, like, because um, there's an estate not far from where we're sitting, where I would guess 5% of the economy is, is drug dealing. That makes that estate a horrible place to live, right? <laughs> Juarez, the best estimate is 70% of the economy is an illegal drug trade because it's the main route into mm-hmm. the United States for drugs coming up from South America. If 70% of the economy is in the hands of armed criminal gangs, they can outbid the state. Mm-hmm. They can pay better wages, they can pay more. And you already had weak rule of law and allegiance to the state anyway in Mexico for all sorts of complex historical reasons. So what you have in Juarez is complete state capture by the cartels because of the money from the drug trade. If drugs were legal, that would not be possible. Mm-hmm. In the same way you don't, you, know, you don't have armed gangsters only in Chicago now in the way they do under alcohol prohibition. I'm Olivia Lang, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's a story about the Zetas, the, the cartel that you mentioned. I mean, about pretty much how they were formed. The origin of the Zetas is yeah. just such a bizarre story. 
In the early part of this century, I think it was the year 2000, the Americans decided to train an elite drug fighting force for the Mexicans, right? Mexican government. So they take them to, I think it was Fort Bragg, you know, they spend whatever it is, I think it's $500 million, something like that. I think, again, the figure is in the book. An enormous sum of money on training a kind of SAS drug squad sort of thing. And um, they go back to Mexico, and a few months later, they all defect en masse to the Gulf Cartel. And then, with all the weapons they've been given, all the training they've been given, everything, and then, I forget how long after, a few years after, they, they break away and form the Zetas. So this, the most kind of deranged drug cartel, is literally all been funded and armed with American money. It's bonkers. I also think, by the way, just related to Maricela's story, this is something that should be an absolute international scandal. Michelle Leonhardt is the head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, which is the main drug war body in the United States. When she was asked, I think testifying before the Senate, about the fact that 60,000 people have been killed in Mexico, she described that as regrettable, but a sign of success in the war on drugs. And you know, when I heard that quote after I'd been and met Maricela's sons, who are just, as you can imagine, they lost their mother and their sister in the unimaginably horrific ways and lost their country they can't go back to Mexico I thought of them and I really thought fuck you that is an outrageous thing to say and by the way I'm sure the vast majority of American citizens would be disgusted by that as well so let's talk about Rosalio then you've met somebody spent time with somebody who was once no bones about it a murderer for this cartel so let's talk about your your experience you know I surprised him I surprised one of my friends recently because of all the people I met for the book I actually think Rosalio is the one I feel most sorry for, which will sound very strange because Rosalio is objectively the worst person I met as well. Rosalio grew up in Laredo, which is um, another border town, a bit like El Paso and Juarez, where basically the other side of the river is Nuevo Laredo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're basically the same place with the border in between. And he, kids then would often, I don't think this happens now, would often just kind of go across the border mm-hmm. for the day or whatever. And he disputes the circumstances, so the story is not entirely clear, there's several versions of it. But basically, from the age of 13, he was trained to be a hitman by the Zetas, mm-hmm. uh, for Miguel Trevino, who later became the head of the Zetas. And the best estimate is that between the ages of, of 13 and 17, he killed 70 people. So he was kept drugged, he was sent off to go and murder people. And again, you've got to think about the culture of terror. I mean, it was really weird. I went to interview him in prison in Tyler County in Texas. There was a really weird moment when I went, actually, because on the way in, this guard says to me, say, like, you know, well, I'll be here, I can't leave you alone with him. I mean, there's a glass thing between mm-hmm. us, so it wasn't, yeah. He said, I can't leave you alone with him. And a minute later, I said, well, he's just gone. <laughs> so I was left alone with him. But, um, but Rosalio, when I interviewed him, he, that dynamic that we were talking about, the culture of terror dynamic, really plays out with Rosalio. Because you think about it, so you've got to be so terrifying no one tries to fuck with you, right? Mm-hmm. You see that dynamic on Chino's block. What it means is, if you're the person who's willing to do something slightly more terrifying than the other guys, you gain a brief competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. So if you're the first one who says, we're not just going to kill them, we'll kill their pregnant wives, right? Then you've got a competitive advantage. If you say, we'll just kill their pregnant wives, we'll kill their pregnant wives and put it on YouTube, you get competitive advantage. If you go, you know what, we'll, we'll kill them, we'll cut off their faces, we'll sew their faces onto a football and we'll send the football to their family. That's something that happened. Not that Rosalia didn't do that, but another gangster did. Then you get a brief competitive advantage. So what looks like just kind of almost like Jeffrey Dahmer style mm. psychosis, in fact, has a kind of depraved rationality within the system that we've created. Mm-hmm. This isn't just a bunch of psychos. This is the logic of the system that we have created. Mm-hmm. There's a huge demand for drugs. Demand is going to be met. If it's transferred to uncriminal gangs, this is, the, this is how that trade will work. 
work and be regulated. So Rosalio is part of the Zetas from 13 to 17. He, he eventually gets out. Again, he disputes the way he gets... He says that he couldn't take it anymore uh, and that he shot himself to get out and they still wouldn't let him go and eventually hands himself over to the Americans. Other people think it's that he, because he was so, you know, it's a deranging environment, he was kind of just killing people outside that logic, was just going, so he threw a grenade into a, ha- a, ha- a nightclub, for example. So there's a point at which they kind of go, not, you're too crazy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the Zetas, but your, their violence has a purpose, purposeless mm-hmm. violence. They don't want Jeffrey Dahmer. They don't mm-hmm. want someone who's just going to be kill, and kill people for the sake of it. The reason why I felt sorry for Rosalia, well, apart from the fact that he's, he was a child when it all happened. Yeah, 13 to 17. We, yeah. need to, we need to reiterate that. Yeah, and he will never. I mean, I think he's due for release when he's in his 80s, maybe. He has to live in solitary confinement all the time because whenever he gets out, someone just stabs him because you get loads of... He's in a prison, obviously, with people who've done hardcore things. If you're the guy who kills him, you know that the Zetas are going to give your family a fortune. Mm-hmm. So Rosalia has to be on his own all the time and a guard said to me on the way you know it'd be nothing for these people to kill him so I thought you know this guy obviously what he did was unspeakably horrific and you know you, you look at the wiretap evidence of things he said where they him and his friend um, I can't remember if it was Jesse or Gabriel one of them are boasting about cutting people up with bottles I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's horrific but you also think well this is a child who was in horrific circumstances and to be punished Clearly, it's right that he's not walking the streets. And, but to be punished in the, solitary confinement is a horrific punishment at the best of times. I mean, he said to me, again, the exact words are in the book, but, you know, sometimes I think they should have let them kill me because this is such a terrible existence. And, yeah, I, I kind of, I felt for him. And I felt, you know, at the moment, part of the problem with the debate about the war on drugs is people who want to end the war on drugs, who want to have a legal route to accessing drugs, tend to enter the debate in a defensive crouch we kind of go no no we're not in favour of heroin no no we're not in favour of crack and of course we aren't and of course it's right to say that but actually I think we need to be and there are some people I met and write about who do do this we need to be much more putting them on the defensive you tell me what we gain for the death of Maricela and 60,000 people like her you tell me what we gain for what happened to Mm -hmm. Rosalio and the people he murdered this is a war and the onus has to be on the people waging the war to tell us what benefits we get mm-hmm. for all 
all of this horrific carnage, even if you don't think about Marsha Powell and you don't think about Chino's childhood and her childhood was destroyed, if you don't think about loads of the other people I met, you don't think about the people Lee was busting, you've got to tell us what we gain for this. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Johan Hari, and we're talking about his book, Chasing the Scream. And Johan, you just mentioned this idea about actually perhaps in this, the sort of fight between the, the prohibitionists and the people for the liberalisation of drugs, we should possibly put the onus onto them to say why, repeatedly say why it's a good idea to keep drugs prohibited. At the same time, there's another part of that argument, which for many reasons, and no doubt many good reasons, is never vocalised by people who are for the decriminalisation of drugs. The argument always is that drugs are bad. So it would be terrible to be on heroin, but the fact that it's illegal makes it even more terrible than the situation would be if it was legal. What is never said, what's never really discussed, again, as I said, for obvious reasons, is actually the vast majority of people could take drugs quite happily and never have any ill effects. And not only that, human beings have been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So there's several things there. One is, um, and again, this is this is a difficult thing to talk and write about for several reasons, partly because it's actually not my family's experience and it feels counterintuitive to me, but this is not from kind of nice liberal legaliser point of view. The UN Office of Drug Control, who are the people who oversee the global drug war, say that 90% of all not drug use is not, currently illegal drug use is non-problematic. Mm-hmm. That means don't harm a person, they don't get addicted, they don't get they don't die, they get overdose, they're not harmed, mm-hmm. right? Um, the World Health Organization commissioned a massive study of um, cocaine use that found addiction is comparatively rare. You, the Americans ref- insisted they don't publish it, but it was leaked. Now that's... That's re- illegal drugs as well. So that's, that's, that's currently illegal drugs. Yeah. you know, dodgy yeah. drugs yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which, of course, are much more dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's really striking. Now, part of the reason that is, if you have a drug war... I think about alcohol, right? We know loads of people who drink. Everyone listening to this are loads of people who drink, right? You go into a pub on a Friday night, you look around you, most people are drinking beer or whatever, and you'll know that some of them will be alcoholics, their lives will be horrendous, but they're a small minority. doesn't mean that tragedy is any less for those individual alcoholics. Part of the problem with the war on drugs is we don't ever get to see the normal casual drug use that doesn't harm anyone because by definition it's underground. Mm-hmm. You can't see it. And certainly people don't talk about it. You mm-hmm. don't want to... It's a rare person who's going to want to be the first, you know, on their Google hits when a future employer is looking for them, them saying, oh, actually, I use ecstasy on a Saturday night or I like a line of coke and it doesn't do me any harm. People don't say that. Mm-hmm. So part of the problem with the war on drugs is it creates a self-reinforcing thing where we get a distorted view of drug use. It would be as if our mental picture of an alcohol drinker was a homeless person lying in the gutter necking spirits and we thought that was typical of alcohol use. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was really surprised Dr. Carl Hart, a a fantastic guy at Columbia University, you know, when he was explaining to me even most people who use crack don't become addicted. I kind of had to keep going back to him and keep going, Carl, talk me through this again, you know. But it's true. So there's partly that. But I think even more interesting than that is the question of the people who do become addicted. So if you've got 90% in our culture who can use without problems, what's going on with the 10% who become addicted? And if you had said to me, 
there's a story that's been told about this for 100 years that we all at some level kind of believe, mm-hmm. and it's become like our common sense. If you had said to me four years ago, Johan, what causes drug addiction? I would have looked at you like you were a bit thick and I would have said, well, drugs, right? So the way we think about this is, uh, you know, if you, me, and the next 20 people who walk past my flat, if we all use heroin for 20 days, on day 21, because there's really strong chemical hooks in heroin, mm-hmm. our bodies would physically need that heroin and that's what addiction means, mm-hmm. right? And the first thing that kind of pricked my awareness that, that couldn't be right, uh, I think it was Gabor Martin in Vancouver who said it to me, I could be wrong, someone said to me, think about, or maybe I read it, I can't, I'm trying to remember now, that someone said to me, think about, think about heroin, right? If, God forbid, you leave this uh, interview and you get hit by a car and you break your hip, mm-hmm. you'll be taken to hospital. It's quite likely you'll be given diamorphine. Diamorphine is really good heroin. It's mm-hmm. medically pure heroin. It's much better heroin than you get if you went to the estate around the corner from here and bought it a bag of smack. You'll be given it for quite a long time, right? That's happening in every hospital in Britain. It's happening all over the world, right? If what we believed about addiction was true, the mm-hmm. old thing... Well, then we know what should happen. All those people should leave hospital ravening heroin addicts and they should be wanting to buy smack on the streets. As everyone listening to this will know, your nan didn't become a smack addict because she had a hip operation. Mm-hmm. Actually, it doesn't happen. And I thought, well, how can that be? How can you have a case? You've got someone taking a really strong version of the drug in the hospital bed and in the alleyway next to the hospital, you've got a street addict using it and the person taking the stronger version of the drug doesn't become addicted, but the person using it in the alleyway does. How can that be? And that led me to Bruce Alexander, who is one of the most wise and humane people I know. The way Bruce explained it to me was, I was vaguely aware of this before, and I think I'd read about it when I was a student, but I, it's one of things that's so strange that I hadn't... Mm-hmm. It, I'd understood, I grasped it at the time and then kind of shut it away somewhere. So Bruce explained that one of the ways the old theory of addiction was established was a simple series of experiments that actually listeners could do themselves if they were feeling particularly sadistic. You get a rat, you put it in a cage. And the rat has two water bottles. One is just water, mm-hmm. like tap water or whatever. And one is water laced with either heroin or cocaine, which rats metabolise in a similar way to us. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and will almost always kill itself. There's actually a famous American anti-drugs advert mm-hmm. using that, saying like, it will happen to you, or whatever the phrasing is. And they go, well, there you go, that's addiction, that's, that's how it works. Bruce came along in the 70s and said, well, hang on a minute. We're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do. Let's do this differently. So he built Rat Park, which is like heaven for rats, right? It's like everything a rat about town could want, you got it in Rat Park. So there's loads of friends. I don't think it's cheese. I think it's a myth that rats like cheese. But whatever, whatever food it is that rats are like, they've got loads of it there. You know, everything a rat could want. Mm. And they've got both the water bottles. They've got the plain water and the drugged water. Obviously, they try both water bottles. I don't know what they are. But what's mind-blowing is... In Rat Park, the rats just don't like the drugged water. They don't use very much. They use dramatically less than the ones in the isolated cages. Whereas there was a huge level of overdose in the isolated cages, there was almost no... In fact, I think there were literally no overdoses in Rat Park. The rats in Rat Park never behaved like addicts. What Bruce says is, and there's lots of human examples that he goes on to give, but what Bruce says is, this tells us that both the right-wing theory of addiction and the left-wing theories of addiction are wrong. So the right-wing theory of addiction, which I would associate with someone like Peter Hitchens, who I like and admire, although I disagree with him, is drug addiction is the result of hedonism. You party too hard, you indulge yourself, you get accidentally hooked, and there you are, and then you're just weak, mm-hmm. right? The left-wing theory of addiction is, uh, which, again, lots of people I like and admire espouse, and I think I more or less espoused in the past, is the drugs hijack your brain, they take you over, it's a disease, addiction is a disease, mm-hmm. you know, you're then an addict forever, even if you're in recovery, all of that stuff. These are not right. Addiction is not about 
your moral failings. It's not about your brain. Addiction is about your cage. Mm-hmm. It's the environment you live in. Addi- I think the exact words he uses are addiction is an adaptation to your environment. And that's really my blog. Should I give the human example as well? There's loads of human examples. People can think about this actually. You know, my mum was, uh, you know, my mum lived when she was little but near the Easter House Estate in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Why is there much higher addiction in the Easter House Estate than there is in Hampstead? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot more people in the Easter House Estate have lives like the isolated rats, and a lot more people in Hampstead have lives like the lives in Rat Park. Well, we should, at this point, actually, let's bring in um, the uh, Gabor Mate's yeah. theory as well, because it's sort of different but related on that on that exact point as well. So what, what's his belief about who becomes an addict? Yeah, Gabor's an, an amazing guy. Um, he's a doctor in, in, in Vancouver, retired now. He was smuggled out of the Budapest ghetto when he was a little boy, he was a Jewish baby, by his mother who was convinced they were about to be murdered. This is very relevant to what he later discovered. He was later reunited with his mother and father. Gabal ended up... They, they were refugees in Canada. Or, actually, I don't think they were refugees. I think they emigrated to Canada. And he ended up working as a doctor on the downtown east side. The downtown east side had, at that time, the highest concentration of addicts in North America. It's like the, the place at the end of the line in the city at the end of the line of North America. And really hardcore addicts. And Gabal was working with them, and, and he noticed something quite striking... All of them had had horrific childhoods. And he started to think about his own childhood. Gabor found himself having addictive impulses. And he describes them really well in his own book, um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, where clearly they were not destructive impulses and like crack addiction, but they were... He was addicted, for example, to buy... He would buy CDs massively compulsively that he then never listened to. He would just kind of store them to the point where he would literally, I think it's... He would, you know, leave a woman in labour, run out, buy... He would leave his kids somewhere, run out and buy... And he didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And he began to think about his own childhood. And what... Gabble's theories, they're much more complicated, much more detailed. He gives a lot more detail than this. But the way I I came to understand it is when you're a baby, you internalise the way your parents treat you. Mm -hmm. So if when you're upset and hurt, your mother soothes you or your father or whoever's looking after you soothes you, over time you internalise that process, you soothe yourself. If when you're upset and angry when you're a baby, your parents are angry with you, Mm -hmm. they don't know how to respond to your emotions because they're themselves damaged. You internalise that. So you will respond to your anger with more anger. You'll respond to your pain with more pain. Mm -hmm. And you don't learn that self-soothing process. Now, Gabor never learned it because or it was impaired in him because his mother couldn't soothe him because she was convinced they were about to be gassed. Her mm-hmm. parents were, in fact, at that moment, at that point in her life, their, she knew her parents were being murdered and they were. They were. They died, I think, in, in Auschwitz, one of the death camps. Now, that's also true if, if you look at the, the people on the downtown east side that Gabor was working with. These were people who had, a lot of them had been First Nations, the, the way they described Native American people in Canada, you know, raised in these horrendous children's homes or victims of sexual abuse, really awful uh, abuse. Gabor then discovered something called the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, which is an extremely detailed survey. I really recommend people actually read it. It's a, it looked at the effect of trauma on children. And what it found is for every seriously traumatic event in a child's life, they are two to four times more likely to grow up to be an injecting drug user as an adult. Mm-hmm. What they found is that, I think the figure, again, the right one, exactly the right ones in the book, I think the figure is something they calculated that 70% of um, adult addiction is caused by childhood trauma. That's a higher correlation than between obesity and diabetes. Mm-hmm. But that relates, first of all, how does this fit with Bruce's theories? But actually it fits quite well. If you think about, if you're an abused child and you grow up and you can't trust people and you're, you're going to become more isolated. Mm-hmm. So it, it's another form of the isolation that Bruce is describing. It's, you can't bond, you find it harder to bond with people mm-hmm. and trust people and be loving and be loved. So I think this really, you know, Gabor says something like, um, it's like 
our theory of addiction is like it's like we're still talking about Newtonian mechanics in a world of quantum physics. We're missing the whole dimension, or the, right. actually, the way I would think of it more, this really relates to the drug war very importantly. Addiction is not the earthquake. Addiction is one of the aftershocks. Mm-hmm. Now, the aftershock is a bad thing. An aftershock can bring the whole building down on you, but the aftershock is not the cause of the problem. And I think this is really important for understanding about addiction because if the cause of addiction is the drug, it's the chemical, mm-hmm. then it might make sense. I actually think it's physically not possible, but it might make sense to say, well, we need to wipe these chemicals from the earth. We need to physically prevent them. If actually the chemical is merely a symptom of the deeper mm-hmm. problem, if in fact, if you get rid of that chemical, it's not like if Marsha Powell or Billie Holiday, if alcohol and heroin and, or meth in Marsha's mm-hmm. case had never been invented, it's not like they would have been fine and happy. They would have found another way that they had to dull their pain and their agony. In the same way, the, this is not for a second to underestimate that the drugs can cause further problems. Mm-hmm. Of course they can in all sorts of horrific ways. But if the addict is terribly damaged long before he or she ever finds her drug, that suggests a much more sensible way to spend the money is, well, let's deal with those problems. Let's deal with isolation. Let's deal with childhood trauma. And as I'm sure we'll get onto, this, we don't have to talk in an abstract way. I went to a country where they actually do this, mm-hmm. Portugal, which is kind of mind-blowing. I'm Natalie Haynes, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We'll get on to Portugal yeah. pretty soon. But I'm sort of thinking this, you know, this idea, the, the idea of we could deal with this, the war on drugs, the idea of, as you said, wiping out the chemicals from the world, getting rid of this organised crime, stopping all of this stuff happening, is, you know, it seems like a, a ridiculous pie-in-the-sky idea. That's never going to happen. But at the same time... Even if we'd stop that and put that money, the idea of, you know, a world of equality where children got hugged all the time by their parents is also something that is is really never going to happen in reality. Do you think there's... If the people behind keeping the war on drugs going know this, it's almost as if for the a, a very small, relatively small number of, you know, rich white people in the, in the West... It's almost as if this war on drugs is about keeping the problem... Um, again, going back to the racialist, you know, keeping the problem in the third world, keeping the problem amongst poor people, because it's never going to go away. But, you know, let's just... Let's keep the war in Mexico so the war's not in New York. You know? I mean, David Simon said that, uh, that the creator of The Wire said, you know, Americans were prepared to fight the drug war to the last Mexican, mm. which I thought was a good line. But yeah. I wouldn't want to impute too much omniscience to governments or imply they were gaming this out in that way. I think it's more people respond to the groups that have power within their society. And Maricela has no power over the people deciding a policy, you know, because the, the drug war is imposed on Mexico. Mexico mm-hmm. didn't want to fight the drug war. If you, Early on, they actually had very sensible policies and Harry Anslinger had them destroyed. And um, Sandra Rodriguez, the crime correspondent for El Diario in, in Juarez, said to me, look, Mexico ain't deciding this policy. There's nothing. This is just imposed on them. This is mm-hmm. the colonial style imposition. So I wouldn't want to imply that it's like gamed out. They're deliberately thinking. I don't think someone's sitting there going, ha, let's keep it in. You know, I don't think it works that way. I don't think I don't think anything works that way. I don't think they're that competent, to be honest. I think it's more things get a kind of um, momentum of their own. They get a kind of extra, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and and when something's there. And also, let's be clear, you know, I don't want to be too, uh, I want to be unfair to these people. The main reason why they keep it going is because most people want it to be kept going at the moment. Because people like me haven't made a good enough argument to them. We mm-hmm. haven't reassured them enough. Because they have perfectly legitimate concerns. They think, I don't want my kids using drugs. I don't want people to become addicted. They're entirely right. And people like me haven't done a good enough job mm-hmm. of explaining. Actually, those concerns are totally right. And there's a better way to meet those concerns than the current policy. So I think actually the main reason why it carries on is because there's majority support for it. 
everywhere because we haven't done a good enough job of communicating the alternatives yet. So well, you mentioned Portugal a couple of times. We'll talk about mm. Portugal in detail and also, you know, what you think can be done differently. But just staying where we were, you were talking about those, those particular scientists. It, oh, lots of stuff seemed to be happening in Vancouver, oddly. And you talk about a project there that's been going on, the Portland Hotel project, which is putting the, you know, the ideas of Bruce Alexander and, and Gabor Mate into, into practice. Tell us briefly about what that was. Well, Portland Hotel Society was founded by a, a, a friend of mine, Liz Evans, personally became a friend of mine. Liz was a psychiatric nurse, and what she noticed was huge numbers of people coming in to her uh, ward were homeless. And what she discovered is, if you're a drug addict and you're discovered to be a drug addict in public housing, they throw you out. And she thought, well, this is bonkers. Who's, who's going to get clean mm-hmm. under a bridge? So she said... Uh, what we need to do is establish a place where we will unconditionally house people. Where we'll just say, you know, if you are using smack, if you're using meth, whatever, we will house you. Mm. Uh, we will not throw you out. Obviously, if you're very violent or something, they have to throw you out. But drug use would not be a reason to throw you out. And she built the Portland Hotel Society. And the Portland Hotel Society made possible, I think, the most moving thing I got for the whole book, which is a story of Bud Osborne. Shall I tell you that? I'm mm-hmm. trying to see if I can do it in... I'm trying to get these, the story down a little bit tighter than I normally tell it. Bud Osborne was a homeless street addict on the streets of Vancouver in the early 20th century, and his friends were dying all around him. They would often die behind dumpsters because you'd use smack behind a dumpster because you didn't want the police to see you, but of course if the police can't see you also when you start ODing, no one else can see you, you'd be found dead a day later. And Bud thought, you know, look, I'm a homeless junkie, what can I do? It's in and out of homelessness. And with the support of the Portland Hotel Society, he did something really basic. He went to a load of addicts and he said, you know what? Why don't we just patrol the alleyways? And what, the addicts will just patrol each other and we see someone overdosing, we'll ring the police, we'll ring a, not the police, sorry, or the ambulance services. And they started doing it. And the results were amazing. Like, overdose rates really, really fell. Mm-hmm. And these addicts started to think, wow, maybe we're not the pieces of shit everyone tells us we are. We can save people's lives. So they started going to, like, public meetings where they were discussing, like, the menace of drug addicts. Mm-hmm. And they'd sit at the back and they'd stand up very politely and they'd go, I think you're, you're talking about us. What could we do differently? And people would kind of, some people were baffled, some people were quite nice. They'd go, well, you leave these needles lying around. And Bud said, fine, we'll, we'll go and pick up the needles as well. So they started doing that. And Bud started reading and he discovered that in Frankfurt they'd opened safe injecting rooms for addicts. So Bud said, fuck, we've got to do that here. It'll massively bring the overdose rate down. So they started following around Philip Owen, the then mayor of Vancouver, Everywhere he went, Philip Owen was like a Mitt Romney figure, a very privileged family, mm-hmm. right-wing guy, a businessman, didn't really knew nothing about drug addiction. And why should he? And for two years, they stalked him. They stalked him with a, a coffin saying, who will die next before you open an ejecting room, Philip Owen? And after two years, Philip Owen finally cracks and he says, who the fuck are these people? I'm going to go and meet some drug addicts. Goes and meets a load of drug addicts, has an absolute Damascene revelation. My God, I had no idea these people had lives like this. He goes to meet Milton Friedman, who was a great advocate of ending the drug war, partly because he'd grown up in Prohibition, Chicago. And Philip Owen comes back and holds a press conference with some drug addicts and says, I'm going to open the first injecting room in North America. And his party tell him he's mad. He opens the injecting drug room. His own party deselects him and he loses his political career over this. But he's then replaced by a liberal party that keeps it open. Mm -hmm. And however many years we are now from it being open, more than 10 years on, we have the results. Average life expectancy on the downtown east side has improved by 10 years, according to the coroner in Vancouver. Overdoses down by 80%. I mean, those are mind-blowing figures. That's, mm-hmm. that's the end of a war, you mm-hmm. get figures like that. And Philip Owen said to me, you know, it was so moving. He just talked about how proud he was. He was proud to have sacrificed his political career. How often do you get... You know, Bud mm-hmm. died last year. I was really glad he got to read the book before he died. And um, he was only in his early 60s. And... You know, when he died, they shut down the downtown east side, the streets of the downtown east side, and they had this 
memorial service for him and you know there were people there who knew that they were alive because of what Bob began and you know whenever you feel I would say to anyone whenever you feel politically powerless whenever you feel like you can't do anything think of Bud right you cannot be more powerless than a homeless street addict and he started an uprising that led to a huge number of people living who would otherwise have died Mm -hmm. and a, a moral example that I think really is important for how we end the drug war. Into Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Johan Hari and we're talking about his book Chasing the Scream. So Portugal, country in Europe, decriminalised all drugs. It's the first time this has happened in you know in modern history. Another argument that's always used about that, obviously now, every drug fiend in Europe is going to be spending their holidays in Portugal, right? Surely that's happened, hasn't it? No, because it's still illegal for tourists. So that's very easily dealt with. That, that particular concern is easy. You, you've got to live in Portugal. You've got to be a Portuguese resident for it to apply to you. I think the, the really interesting thing about Portugal is... So, in, again, at the turn of the 20th, 21st century, the 20th into the 21st century, um, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is mind-blowing. And they've been trying the American way, cracking down, cracking down, more and more people in prison, all of that stuff. And every year it just got worse. And... The leaders of the two main political parties in Portugal did something really interesting. They got together and they said, let's set up a panel of doctors, scientists and judges and get them to figure out the solution. And let's both agree in advance that whatever they decide, we'll do. Mm -hmm. So we just took it out of politics, right? So they have this meeting, they have this panel led by a man called Juan Gulao, who's the kind of central figure in this chapter of the book. Another just, I really want that guy to get the Nobel Peace Prize because he's an incredible man. And Juan... Well, comes back and the panel recommends. I don't think they expected the panel to recommend this. The panel recommends decriminalise everything, right, from cannabis to crack. But, and this is absolutely crucial, we take all the money we used to spend on arresting, imprisoning, harassing drug users. Let's spend all that money instead on two things. One is really honest drug education, like quite startlingly honest drug education. I went and sat in on one of the classes. And even more importantly really good compassionate care for addicts that is focused on reconnecting them to the society mm-hmm. so some of that is things like rehab some of it's methadone some of it's um, substitution therapies but actually the most important thing they did is not that it's reconnecting addicts to society by getting them subsidized jobs mm-hmm. so for example say you've got someone who's a recovering smack addict you say to a garage i know what you'd pay a mechanic in in portugal but let's say it's 17 grand a year you employ him, we'll pay eight grand a year of those wages mm-hmm. and you pay the rest. So you get someone half price, basically. So what you had is exactly the opposite of the American way. The American way is take an addict and cut him off, make him suffer more. Gabor said to me, if suffering made addicts stop, I wouldn't have a single patient left. What have my, what have my patients not suffered? They've been raped, they've been beaten, they've, been, you know, they've, they've watched their friends die. Anyway, so the American thing is cut them off, make it much harder for them to get jobs. Once you've got a criminal record, those women I met in Tet City, they're not going to get jobs anytime soon. It's going to be really hard for them when they get out. This is the exact opposite. Make it easier for them to reconnect, make it mm-hmm. easier for them to get back to a sane life. And again, we've had a good run. It's 15 years, nearly 15 years, 14 years. And the results are in. And we've got to be clear about this. And people on my side have got to be really honest about this. Drug use did go up. Drug use went up by about 7%. Now, some people say that sometimes people being more honest about when they're asked, because it's not a criminal offence. 
I suspect there has been, there are clearly some people who don't use drugs because it's illegal. The other figures are equally striking. Every study shows addiction is down. Injecting drug use has halved, it's down by 50%. Overdose is dramatically down. HIV transmission among drug addicts is, is dramatically down. And teenage drug use stayed the same. It initially slightly fell, then it went back to what it was, you know, when they started it. So, the reason you know it's a success is two things. One is Portugal has a really competitive political system and no one is proposing to go back, mm-hmm. none of the main parties. But even more movingly, one of the interviews I did that most moved me was a guy called Juan Figuera, who's the chief drug cop in Portugal. The equivalent in Britain would be the head of the Scotland Yard drug mm-hmm. squad. And he said, again, I'm paraphrasing because I'm not reading quite directly out the book, but he said he was the leader of the opposition to the decriminalisation. He said everything that the Daily Mail would say in Britain. We're going to be flooded with drug users. Mm-hmm. We're going to have people collapsing in the gutter. It's going to be a disaster. Everything. And, you know, actually a lot of legitimate concerns that people would be worried about. I don't want to kind of caricature it. Real concerns. And Juan Figueroa said to me, you know, again, I stress I'm paraphrasing the exact quotes from the book, but everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did happen. And he said he hoped the whole world followed Portugal's example. Mm-hmm. And that he actually felt really embarrassed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and harassing drug users. Because he said, now I just see that was, you know, they're, they're just people who need our help and our love. And that to me was so moving because, to be honest, I put off going to Portugal for a while because I was a bit worried because I thought, if I go to Portugal and it hasn't worked, this is going to be the most fucking depressing book ever written. It's going to be like, torture, carnage, horror, you know, carnage, horror. But actually, it's incredibly moving to go, mm-hmm. particularly at the end of a journey where I've seen, you know, the real nightmares. To see that there's a place where, of course, tragedies still occur mm-hmm. in Portugal. Tragedies, addiction is still a tragedy in Portugal and it still happens to some people. But to see that there's just a pragmatic solution that dramatically reduces the number of addicts, the number of dead people. And I think I'd say, just saves money. Mm-hmm. What, you know, even if you don't give a damn about drug addicts and, you know, drug users, what a waste of our taxes. You know, where are all the right wingers? It's very interesting on this. The American right has a wing that is extremely good on this question. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously not very sympathetic to the American right, as you know. But some of the most articulate opponents of the drug war are people like Senator Rand Paul, Ron Paul, National Review, not a magazine I ever agree with anything else on. You know, there's, there's you a, mentioned Milton Friedman. Yeah, yeah, Milton Friedman, Reason magazine. There's mm-hmm. some fantastic... The American right has a really good wing on this. And one thing I'd be interested to know, and people please email me, and you know, if there, is, if there are such people, I would love to talk to them, why the British right is not better on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there are some... Weirdly, Nigel Farage used to be very good on this. Uh, again, not someone I would normally be that sympathetic to, but he actually was very good on this issue, and now has apparently... I haven't looked it up, but um, someone's telling me he's kind of backed off from that. Alan Duncan was good on it for a while and backed off. But I think... And I presume a lot of those, you know, especially the American right, are going to be, you know, they're going to be for this from a you know a hardcore libertarian yeah. perspective rather than yeah. a, a compassionate yeah you know they, they don't care about you know the welfare of the addicts really they just think people yeah. should be entitled to do whatever they want because they want to be able to do to yeah. do whatever they want now looking at that portugal study though looking at being able to have the sort of hindsight of time seeing what's yeah. going on being able to see the studies i mean dispassionate a dispassionate view would have to be that that's unequivocally a success what is to stop us doing this? Why are we not doing the same thing? Cowardice. And this is actually a situation where I strongly suspect... If you look at what David Cameron said when he was on the Home Affairs Select Committee when he was a backbench MP, he... Uh, I haven't looked up the stats in... Uh, I haven't looked up the transcript in many years, but um, I think I wrote a column about it years ago. But if I remember rightly, they're interviewing a man who... Um, 
whose son had died of a heroin overdose and the guy's making the case for legalisation. And Cameron says something like, that's a very persuasive case. And, you know, I remember talking to Danny Kushlick, who was involved, who, the head of Transform, who's the best expert on this in the world. And, you know, Cameron was apparently very good on this issue at that time. And, um, you know, it's been reported that one of David Cameron's relatives had a drug problem and, of course, was not sent to prison, was sent to rehab. You know, no one wants the drug war for the people they love, unless they're really odd. So... It's one of the things where I think they privately know it. What we need to have is a broad-based popular movement to change people's minds, to answer their fears, which are totally legitimate fears. This isn't one of those things. It's not like arguing with, I don't know, homophobes, where, you know, basically they're just being nasty. These are totally legitimate and understandable fears that we should be answering. And I should say, there's, there's a whole chapter about Britain in the book as well, about a really fascinating experiment that happened in Britain in the 80s and early 90s. It's not a book where Britain isn't a big factor, but the... I think we can learn from all these places. But then today, the way we'll change on this issue is the way you change with anything. You have a mass-based popular movement that demands a sane alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, the model of the gay rights movement, I think, is a really important one. We need to have a, cult- a deeper cultural change where drug users are not seen as, you know, whatever they're seen as, hedonist, hedonistic, hippie losers, and drug addicts are not seen as morally flawed and disgusting people, where drug users are seen as people who are overwhelmingly not harming themselves and are analogous to beer drinkers... And drug addicts are terribly, people who were terribly damaged before they found their drug and need our love and support. So I think that we need that deeper cultural change. And we need a movement, a democratic movement, to demand this change and to push up the agenda. The Green Party is fantastic on this. Caroline Lucas is fantastic. I actually, Nick Clegg, someone I've not praised in a very long time, is good on this issue. Norman Baker resigned over this issue in Britain. I think one of the things that's very striking when you talk to people is... I think people are re- people know that what we've got isn't working and people are ready to hear about the alternatives. That's a good thing. We're in a good we're a good place to start having this conversation. The other thing is we have tried the alternative for 100 years. No one can say we didn't give it a fair shot, you know. We should experiment cautiously with alternatives. We need to do it step by step, you know. And of course, what's different places will need different solutions for different things. It's also important to talk about the limitations of what happened in Portugal. So, Portugal has decriminalized personal use but they've not provided a legal route to buy it. Mm -hmm. So you still have to go to a drug dealer to buy it, and that's still a crime. So that means that you've dealt with... You don't get, like, what happened to Marsha Powell. You don't get an addict treated brutally. But you do still get what happened to Chino and to Rosalio. I mean, Rosalio, it's not, obviously it's not, you don't have Zetas in Portugal, but that dynamic is still playing out, which is you still have the war for drugs. To end that, you have to look at legalisation. And legalisation means different things for different drugs. And the way Danny Kushlik explains, and I think I, quote, I know I quote him in the book on this, uh, is that can sound very radical, but actually the methods of regulation that legalisation involve already exist in Britain, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about, at the moment, we have, a system of total anarchy. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown mm-hmm. users, right? Legalisation is the process of regulating that trade, of bringing it into the web of regulation that already exists. And we don't need to create any new regulatory structures. So you think about alcohol. We have a regulated system for alcohol. You go, you have to go, you know, you go to a designated place, there's licensing hours, there's all those things. I would expand those regulations to cover cannabis. I would set up a slightly... And clearly, it's not for me to... You know, it needs to be debated. Things need to be tried. You know, things I'm proposing may not work. They may work better. We need to try them. But I would suppose that you would then have, say, clubs that would be licensed to sell ecstasy, party drugs. You might have clubs that are licensed to sell cocaine. There's... uh, For something like heroin, you would do what they do in Switzerland, and I went to see this, 
and, and indeed what happened in Britain, in Liverpool, and worked unbelievably well until the till it was shut down with American pressure, which is you would prescribe heroin to addicts. And that is something that has been proven conclusively to have extraordinary effects. Am- amazing stories, as I tell in the book. There is a legitimate debate about what do you do... Well, it's a leg- legitimate debate about all of it, but there's also a debate about what do you do with the hardest drugs, things like crack and meth. And uh, there's a range of things you may say, well, some of them will keep prohibited... You may say uh, you would have the equivalent of what they have in Vancouver, but kind of stepped up. So you'd have designated spaces where you could go in, buy it and use it there, but not be allowed Mm -hmm. to leave. We need to experiment with all these things because the one thing we know for sure is what we've got ain't working. Well, let's, um, let's leave the, the actual content of the book there. We'll move away from drugs and drug prohibition, but perhaps we'll stay with rehabilitation. How are you expecting this book to be received? I've deliberately not thought about it. I just, I wrote the best book I could write. You know, we massively fact-checked it and everything. And uh, I've started the next one and, I, you know, do some other work. I'm a visiting fellow with Purpose in New York. At the end of the day, you can, a friend of mine said to me, you know, you can, only, you can only control the bit that's yours and people can react however they want to react. But what would you like to happen? I've deliberately not given that very much headspace. Obviously, I, what I would like is for people to connect with the stories of the people that I've written about and to be inspired by people like Chino and Bud mm-hmm. and Lee. Um, because I want to, what I'm trying to get at is I want to separate, I've just said, you know, mm. how are people going to receive this book written by you? But also, this is, it's a really important campaign. That's my point. What would you like to, separating that from the first part, what would you like You mean this, politically? Yeah I mean, how, how, oh, what, I yeah, I mean, what would you, how would you like this book to contribute to the, the debate, I guess? Well, I think... I wanted the book to be an expression of one of the ways the drug war is maintained is that we dehumanise the people involved. We dehumanise drug users, we dehumanise drug addicts, we dehumanise cops actually involved Mm -hmm. in it, we dehumanise drug dealers. And the reason, one of the reasons why it's told the stories of people is I wanted to say, you know, these are people. You know, I've lived through an unbelievable revolution in my lifetime. If I think about, I've got a gay uncle, right? If I think about his life versus my, if I think, and then, I, you know, one of my nephews might be gay. They're still quite young, so they wouldn't know. But if I think about the trajectory from what my gay uncle's mm. life was like, my life, and then if one of my nephews was gay, that's a story of extraordinary progress. Things that, you know, when I hear my nephews talk about these issues, it's just the idea that kids that age would ever have had these thoughts when I was that age is unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need is a kind of progress like that on these questions. Now, clearly one book can't do that. And I don't want to sound messiatic or grandiose. I would like to make, you know, like whatever small contribution a book can make to that wider change in people's consciousness that has to happen. And I think to some degree is happening, actually. I don't mean in relation to the book, but I think it's happening generally. Essentially, if you think about historical moments when the circle of people's empathy is expanded, as Peter Singer, the philosopher, puts it, those are never moments we regret. Mm-hmm. The moments when you go, you know what, now we see that these people have feelings. Or in fact, in Singer's case, he's not just talking about people, animals mm-hmm. have feelings. We never regret doing that. We never go, God, oh, do you remember that time we humanised all those black people, gay people, women, whatever. You never go, oh, what a, what a fuck up that was. You know, and I think expanding that to include people like Chino and Lee and Bud is really important. Not least because not only are they people, they're some of the most amazing people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And what's next for you then? What's, where do you go from here? Uh, I'm writing another book, which I'm really enjoying, which I've been asked to not talk about the subject mm-hmm. of. I've been told by my agent to not talk about it. Um, but that's really, actually, yeah, that's a, that's a subject that, if anything, is slightly more big or complicated than the war of drugs, it'll probably take me a million years and you'll come back, we'll do this interview again. We'll do another next interview in, you know, 2050 or something. But, um, so I'm re- I really love the process, the kind of depth and texture of writing books. I really like that. The 
you know, so someone like Chino, who I interviewed mm-hmm. over three years, to just keep going back and going like, Chino, tell me again about something we discussed two and a half years ago. There's something, the, the depth and texture of that and, and really seeing something from all sides and being able to follow a story in a long way, a kind of focus and concentration. You know, we live in a culture that is so distracted and books have always been one of my, like a great passion of mine. And um, I really like that. So that's what I, I enjoy doing. That's all we've got time for. I've been talking to Johan Harry and we've been talking about his book Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, which is out now from Bloomsbury Circus. So, Johan, thank you very much for oh, coming back on the Glasses to talk about it with I've me. loved doing it. Thank you for reading it so closely and for everything, Neil. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, or even a lot, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.